90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good. How about yourself? You know, I'm really glad I finally have all of these things shipped off to Antarctica for the season. <laughs> Don't you still have to cross your fingers? I mean, it's kind of scary, right? Are you going to get... It's a little little scary, yeah. Are you going to get calls from Antarctica, like wanting you to troubleshoot stuff, you know, from a continent away? Uh, we got a sat phone call last year in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I, I'm hoping there's no problems with these units. They've been pretty difficult to manufacture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so we've been doing that and they had to get to to Christchurch for the last the last flight down the last C130 flight down. Oh my gosh, the last one down for the season? Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of close. What <laughs> warms up, the ice runways start getting soft, that kind of thing. Yeah, you definitely don't uh, want that. Yeah, so it was it was very terrifying loading, you know, $50,000 of instruments that we had just finished manufacturing on the back of a semi and And just saying see you later. <laughs> Wishing them good luck all the way to, uh, uh, to Antarctica, uh, yeah. You need to put one of those, like, traveling Buddha statues in there with it just to just to cover your bases, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I haven't done anything that exciting yet. So it's it's a relative lull in the um, field trip season. So we'll get ramped back up here in December. So Yeah. You know, I keep saying that I'm going to stop writing manuals for equipment so that they have to take me. <laughs> no kidding, man. A lot of things that you've touched have been in Antarctica. Right, but somehow I have not yet got to go. Yeah, so. that's real disappointing. We could go and I think they have like a um, they have a marathon there or something. We could go do that. No. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. you know, one of the uh, one of the things I could do is make it seem like my instruments are hard to use. I could I could alter people's perception. Oh, very good. If only we had an expert to talk to about perception. Well, as a matter of fact, we do. So this week, we're excited to be talking to Dr. Jeffrey Wagman about his research in psychology and how one writes a fun paper. Hi, Jeff. Hi, how are you? Great. Welcome to our show. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Just so, for the record, I have never been to Antarctica either. <laughs> Great. We'll all go and do a marathon. <laughs> there you go. I like it. Uh. So, Jeff, could you tell us a little bit about your background and, you know, if, if you met somebody at a conference, how would you introduce yourself? We always tell our students they'd be prepared for elevator speeches like this. Um, <laughs> I, um, I went to college at a small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania um, called Franklin and Marshall College, where I had some really great professors and um, Two in particular during the same semester who um, interested me in experimental psychology and in studying perception and the relationship between perception and behavior. Um, and from there, I went on to graduate school at the University of Connecticut, uh, where I also had wonderful professors. What do you know? Um, and shortly after defending my dissertation, actually, just before defending my dissertation there, I uh, came out to Illinois State University, and I've been here ever since. That was 2003, so quite a while. How do you find uh, Illinois versus Pennsylvania? I guess it's probably the weather's probably about the same, huh? A, a little wind, little more wind, a little mm -hmm. less snow, mm -hmm. um, and a whole lot more flat. Yeah. 
<laughs> so when we ask geologists that question, yeah, they're always really disappointed. <laughs> so, <laughs> they say they have to go to ditches to find rocks. There are no rocks at all that's on the surface. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Yep. Better for running, though. Um, <laughs> so I had a question about this because this is something I used to do for money in college. Yep. <laughs> was take all these like perception tests at the psychology department. Is this the kind of stuff that you run? Uh, I mean, yeah. It depends no? what kind of perception tests you're talking about. Um, okay. Um, I'm interested in the relationship between perception and behavior. So how your sense systems allow you to do stuff. Okay. Like reach for a cup of coffee or drive a car or walk down the street. Um, okay. Most people who study perception are interested in how perception allows you to experience um, right. colors, sizes, shapes. Uh, I'm more interested in how it lets us do stuff. Did you have to take, do you take like, have you taken like kinematics classes for like how your body reacts to that or are you just not mind so centric? Yeah. Not specifically, but um, that those courses and that material is not irrelevant um, <laughs> okay. at all. Okay, cool. So Jeff, how did you get interested in this particular aspect of experimental psychology? I think I was always interested in it. I just didn't know it. I was always <laughs> interested in uh, the concept of intention and how we decide to engage in a behavior and um, then do it or not. Um, and uh, how skilled performers uh, like athletes um, perceive and then do. Um, this is something that I've always thought about and didn't know that anybody could ever think about for a living. And um, when I was in college, I realized you could do that. I was exposed to this as an area of study. It wasn't anything I had thought about before. Um, and um, yeah, it just enabled me to really study a problem that I'd always been interested in, um, and it, but had no idea I could do it and write about it and think about it and um, make a living at it. So this stuff seems, I mean, we read your fun paper on here, obviously, but the stuff that you're doing just from reading, you know, the titles of some of your other papers, this seems really applicable to the everyday person, right? I mean, this stuff is stuff we all do. Yes, and it's stuff we, we do all the time without, without thinking about it, without, um, often without planning it, and that's how it should be. I'm, um, I, I tell my students that I study uh, the everyday successes and the sometimes not so everyday successes of the perceptual systems. Um, just the, and I ask my students, I say, okay, how many of you, you know, bumped into other people on your way in today or crashed your car or fell down the stairs or, you know, uh, just to make a point that everything we do involves the guidance of perceptual systems, mostly vision, but but also uh, to a surprising degree, touch as well. So some of the applications of this, I, I always go back to 
tools and instruments and that kind of thing, since that's what I do. It seems like a lot of this, how how your perception and how you handle things will be really important for designing a lot of things that people use every day, more the industrial design side. Do you interface with that quite a bit? Not explicitly, but I have done work on how people perceive properties of handheld tools um, that they manipulate. So you can, like I said, this is where touch comes into a surprising degree. You can perceive many properties of an object that you're holding, even if you can't see it. And importantly, you can perceive parts of it uh, that you're not explicitly contacting. If you hold the pencil between your fingers, you could feel the other end of the pencil, um, not just the part that your skin is contacting. And anyway, uh, we've done work on perceiving um, geometric and functional properties of these objects, including uh, whether we'd be able to use them to perform some sort of goal-directed be behavior like throwing or uh, whether you could use it as a hammer or, or um, and we look at the the physical properties of the object that influence people's perceptions of the kinds of things it can be used for. Um, so I guess I haven't done work on explicitly connecting this to design, but I would hope that somebody could take my hand off and run with it. So who else is consuming the outcomes of your research then? Uh, well, uh, other experimental psychologists, movement scientists, um, some human factor psychologists, those are the ones interested in the design elements. Um, those are the main groups, I would think. Because so much of this, it's, it's weird to me because, you know, our science is so observational. So it's weird to me to think that these are all things that you don't even think about doing, just like you just said, you know, so why look at it if we're not even thinking about doing it, you know, like but what see, drives you to look at it? That's exactly why it needs to be looked at, right? Uh, that's yeah. it, the fact that it goes on in the background and it goes on um, so seamlessly and effortlessly. Um, I think that's why it deserves attention. It's the same reason we study the function of the brain and the lungs and the heart and all the other organs that go on in the background too. Um, but this is a, the, the connection between perception and behavior is what enables um, you to perform successful, uh, efficient behavior and that's what it means to be alive. I mean, to move around and interact and do, achieve goals. So you said that touch was one of the, the senses that you worked a lot with. What are some of the ways that our senses can fool us, though? Because you said it, <laughs> our perception does a pretty good job most of the time, but not all the time. Yeah, so um, lots of people study, um, I guess, what you're referring to as illusions. Um, and they're illusions in some sense in that you know, the output of the perceptual process doesn't really match the, um, the output of some sort of artificial measuring device like um, a scale or a meter stick, or depending on what it is you're perceiving. But I'm not sure we should be thinking of the perceptual systems as doing that job in the first place, that, that the perceptual systems, in my opinion anyway, have evolved to do something totally different. So when we see instances 
uh, where you know someone's perception of a visual perception of a line doesn't match what the ruler says it is or someone's uh, haptic or technical term for touch perception of um, heaviness doesn't match a scale to me that says more about what we don't understand um, more so than it tells us about you know some sort of mistake um, in the way I look at it the perceptual systems don't make mistakes they do what they do and if um, you know you think that this object doesn't weigh as much as that object well you know that that reflects what you can do with that object uh, more so than it reflects your ability to determine weight in ounces or pounds um, that said if we can get a hold of illusions and well I guess what most people call illusions we can uh, that lets us know that we are understanding the variables that influence perception um, for example you can make an object feel heavier by um, putting a weight at one end so if you slide if you hold the you know, a baseball bat by the handle, the way you're supposed to hold it, it feels relatively heavy. If you hold it by the barrel, it feels light. Same object. It's not an illusion. It's just the way that the object requires um, muscular effort to move it. More effort means, or more diverse effort means, feels heavier to you. You're not wrong. It's just your, your touch system is... Um, using something other than you know a metric weight it's it's using a movement based metric okay yeah so that that makes sense and one thing that i'm always sort of curious about with these things is you and i could perceive the same object differently right and our, our our systems of perception operate similarly but not identically or is our, our are they practically identical? I would say they're certainly more similar than they are different. And any differences that we show has to do with our um, experience and our expertise. Um, you know, someone who's an expert at, um, I don't know, any particular task will perceive the objects that you use in that task differently um, in, a, in a more refined way. But the laws that op that underlie perception are the same. So, uh, a really interesting study in this area is um, if you ask tennis players and non-tennis players to tell you where on the racket they'd like to hit the ball. So they just shake the racket around without seeing it, and they feel, okay, this is where I'd want to hit it. There's no difference between experts and and non-tennis players. The difference, of course, is in their ability to bring that spot to the ball. <laughs> so the laws that underlie your abilities are the same, and it's just your uh, your your um, attunement to the stimulation patterns that are informative about a particular property. So I guess it's just about it's about the tuning of your perceptual system. That's what's different. We don't operate under different rules or uh, use different laws. It's just the tightening of those laws that might be different for different people. Is there a really large difference in perception 
Um, basically, as you get older, I mean, does this change? Obviously, you're training yourself when you're little to do these things. Like, I can reach that thing across the room or whatever. I mean, is there is there studies about that? That seems really interesting to me. Having a little girl right now, you know. So as you get older, you mean an older adult or you mean older just in general, like from okay. child onward, like how much does age affect that whole perception? It's not age per se, I'd say. I think it's more about changes in your ability to do things and your experience. Oh. There's some really great research uh, coming out of uh, New York University. There's a woman there uh, named Karen Adolph. She does developmental perception research. And one of her well-known findings is that uh, when kids begin to crawl, they begin to figure out uh, what slopes they can crawl down. And But then as soon as those kids begin to walk, they have to relearn the skill about walking down a slope. It's a totally mm -hmm. different behavior. So they're not learning about a slope per se or what different angles mean. They're learning about their ability to interact. Um, and on the other end of the developmental spectrum, um, if you look at older adults, uh, so if you compare older adults and younger adults and ask them whether they could step on a surface or climb a set of stairs, younger adults, um, that, that they begin to tell you no when the height of the stair gets to be about 90% of their leg length, which is pretty tall, but... Um, <laughs> But older adults begin to say no when it's about 70% of their leg length. Okay. So they're aware that their abilities are changing. But it does, you know, it's not instantaneous. It takes the whole, you know, for a child uh, learning to crawl or walk, it takes, it takes those weeks and months to figure that out. Okay, yeah, so that, I, I guess it's, it's tied into your physical ability to what you know you're going to be able to do based on y your prior trials. Well, it's not, yeah, it is about that, but it's also about your ability to explore in the moment because your abilities change, can change instantaneously. You put on high heel shoes or a suit of armor, like we'll discuss later, <laughs> um, or uh, a backpack or pick up your child all of a sudden your abilities change and um, you can learn about your new capabilities so long as you can explore the stimulation patterns of relevance so i think about this when i just recently went and did a lot of um my friend has a big you know augmented reality setup so i imagine there's a lot of perception there right yeah, and that is a new um, burgeoning field of research as the, um, as the um, immersion has um, uh, developed and as the costs have come down, people are investigating that. And you can manipulate variables in there that you couldn't possibly manipulate outside of there. Right, um, exactly. And, and you can decouple things that are ordinarily coupled. And uh, so people are using that um, as a tool quite a bit. Yeah, I would imagine that it would be hard in the experimenting with people realm to decouple most things, really. I mean, we operate as a system and the universe operates as a system around us. It's pretty hard to say, okay, let's put, uh, let's put gravity on hold for a second. 
and, and try this again. So uh, sort of in that vein, if I'm doing an experiment and I'm, I'm a chemist, unless I'm not controlling something, if I mix so much of chemical A and so much of chemical B, I always get the same reaction. Is, is working with people like that, are people repeatable or does it just tell you that you're not controlling for something or is there natively scattered? Oh, there's certainly variability uh, among people that, um, but it's, if there are, that there are laws that underlie the phenomenon, uh, phenomena of interest, then um, that spread shouldn't be so large. Um, you know, so what I tell students is that most psychologists are interested in how people are different. Um, Cognitive psychologists, and I'm sort of a cognitive psychologist, are interested in how they're the same. You know, our memories work pretty much the same. Our visual systems work pretty much the same. Our uh, ability to learn based on reinforcement is pretty much the same. Now there's variability, and that variability is interesting. Um, but you ought to be able to account for almost all the variance um, if you're studying the right variables i think that seems so surprising just because you're all we're all special snowflakes right (laughs) (laughs) we're all special (laughs) snowflakes uh cut with the same tools so you know just like the rest of the snowflakes (laughs) (laughs) that's actually quite um i don't know comforting to me when i think of this stuff i'm like how can you possibly control for all that but to hear you say that yeah okay it makes sense we do basically have the same stuff that's that's very interesting not something i realized i guess well and another thing that maybe is different between our fields maybe isn't uh, how does funding work in in your field so you know we write a 15-page proposal to nsf and it goes through panel review and they say yes or no and uh, about 90% of the time they say no yeah. and we retool it and it goes back to NSF again with the next call. Uh, and would, how does that work in psychology? It sounds like the laws that underlie those processes are common across <laughs> our disciplines. Um, yeah, that sounds very similar to the kinds of, um, to the process that you would use to apply for an NSF grant. We have, you know, um, NSF is one of the large funding bodies um, for, uh, the kind of stuff that I do, uh, NIH, the National Institute of Health, is another. But for them, you've really got to have some sort of connection to disease, disease prevention, special populations, um, uh, maybe people who are visually impaired or mobility impaired. Um, they have a lot more money, as you might expect, than NSF. Um, but they really do, and justifiably so, they really do want to see some uh, direct application. Um, and there are also private agencies um, that, you c- that do fund research in my area. They have their own quirks and their own agendas, and you need to work within those as well. Okay, yeah, so one section that you have to write that we always get to skip, I would assume, <laughs> is the... Uh, 
I'm not, I don't remember what the exact title is, but you're, you're using human subjects. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've seen a proposal before for something called the Institute for Rock Torture, which would never <laughs> fly in your field. Uh, <laughs> so how does that process work since you are dealing with people in these experiments? Most of the time when you apply for funding, they just they want some sort of guarantee that you are going to go through the proper channels at your university. And I think on the other end, if the grant is funded, they'll want that paperwork to be done. Most of the time, this is all done through local bodies at a particular university. Um, and uh, we have a, 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 an office on campus. Most universities have a similar office called the Institutional Review Board and they review these proposals. The work that I do is, you know, as, um, as, as wacky as uh, the tasks that I give my participants, most of mine is, um, they're not too concerned with. Um, they're really, really concerned with research that involves kids or protected populations um, or research where you're asking people um, potentially embarrassing questions or and that's you know people do that kind of research they want to know about their um, upbringing or their drug use or their whatever that's completely out of my area but you know we do need to have protections in place for our participants for those reasons um, but you know the, the IRB can be very um, quirky and some people run into difficulty over things that they don't think is a big deal and somebody does and you know it's just another hoop that we need to go through um you know i guess it's there are i'm sure there are hoops in geology that you show up to your site and it's raining or you know but i don't private, have to deal with that yeah private land that's always a big deal um <laughs> but they don't People care. With guns that don't yeah. be on their property. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even though it's not their property. It yeah. happened a few times. Um, <laughs> but they don't care if you blindfold people and throw a pound of feathers in their lap, basically. <laughs> I placed it gently in their hand. <laughs> um, you know, I did a study where um, I gave, they wore a weighted backpack, um, which is my connection to this uh, fun paper, Friday oh, paper. Nice. So they wore a weighted backpack. And uh, in order to figure out how much weight to put in the backpack, I wanted to weigh them. And I thought, no way they're going to want, they're going to raise a fuss about having people step in on a scale. And that was no problem. They didn't, that, that didn't bother them no. at all. Okay. Um, they said, oh, yeah, no problem. Um, but other people run into issues, very strange issues. It kind of just depends on, it's kind of like uh, submitting a grant proposal and you just, you know, if the reviewer's in a good mood that day and, you know, they, they all, the, the IRB have a, have a difficult job. They're trying to protect participants and they're trying to, um, let researchers do their jobs that, um, sometimes those things come into conflict. You, every researcher who works with human participants or animal participants, there's a whole nother process to go through if you want to mm -hmm. work with animals. Um, every researcher has a favorite story about how this, that, or the other thing was held up. And <laughs> Yep. See, IRB stuff is exactly why I say I work on rocks. <laughs> like, that's why. Like, 
You don't ask rocks about their drug use or anything like that? <laughs> How does it feel when I hit you with this drill? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so you've done a lot of interesting things over your career so far. And what's some of the most surprising results that you've had where you, you had some idea of what you were going to see and maybe that's not at all what happened? Or maybe you're generally right, but what, what's some of your surprising results? Hmm. Okay. Well, um, uh, so, so I'm interested in uh, people's ability to perceive what they can and can't do. And, um, I did a, one of the paradigms I used is I, ha I show people a, uh, like a slanted wooden surface and their job is to tell me whether they could stand on that surface. And I put it different inclinations and they begin to say yes or no. And um, I wanted to see whether people could f use a tool to perceive that. And so I handed them um, uh, just a wooden dowel, right? My, my lab consists of um, PVC pipe duct tape and wood. I just used a wooden <laughs> dowel. And I had people. It sounds about like geology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I had them probe the surface, and they told me whether they could stand on it. And there was no difference between their ability to do so with using this probe and looking at the surface. And we went further, and we showed that there was no difference in their ability to do this task um, when they were blindfolded and they held the probe in their preferred hand or their non-preferred hand whether they use two hands or one hand, whether we attach the probe to their foot and they use their foot to do it, the ability was the same. Uh, and this is one of my wacky studies. We even attached uh, a stick to a helmet on their head and they use their head to perceive the surface. <laughs> there was no difference. Their people were able to um, use whatever means we gave them to explore this surface to tell us what whether how they could interact with this surface i guess that was surprising that that they were adaptable and flexible and were able to um, detect well to use the stimulation patterns that were available by whatever means they could See, this is awesome because there's all these stories about, you know, blind mountaineers and people mm. are like, how can you do this? And that's how, right? I mean, you have the why is someone doesn't need necessarily sight to perceive. What Not at all. Capable of. Um, and just this week in my lab meeting, we're going to be discussing um, a paper on um, blind participants who echolocate. Oh, yeah, I've heard so they, about this. they make clicks with their yeah. mouth. They make mouth clicks and they listen for the reflected sound. And people can do amazing things this way. There's one guy in particular who shows up on YouTube a lot. He can ride a bike, uh, he can jog. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And none of that would be possible if there weren't these stimulation patterns that are lawfully related to. Uh, the fit between animal and environment and and that lawfulness leads to flexibility it means that these that they that these uh, it, it structures not just the light to enable you to see it but the sound so that you can hear it and the vibrations running through a wooden probe that you're using so that you can feel it so 
this is, as the car talk guys would say, a question that is unencumbered by the thought process, <laughs> uh, since, since I know very little <laughs> about this. But could you think of the, your senses feeding what you are perceiving, how you're perceiving your world as sort of a, okay, I've got this pipe and I'm going to fit information into this pipe. And so now I don't have the sense of sight feeding information into this pipe, so I can shove more information from the other senses in it. it can I think of it as a bandwidth limiting problem in my brain? Huh. Hmm. Because that information's always there, but we're just not using it. Uh, you are using information from other senses, though. There are people who study speech perception who make the claim that everybody lip reads. Uh, because um, when speech is not just an auditory phenomenon, uh, you can understand someone much better if you're seeing them. You know, think about being in a noisy restaurant or something like that, or being on a Skype chat with somebody. Um, you can understand them better when you watch them because you are then getting that, that structured stimulation coming in um, twice you know you, you're you're getting twice the information so I think we can do these things um, I think the potential is there it's just a matter of practice it's like um, it's like anything else you can um, hone your expertise there's nothing particularly special I think about say these blind people who can echolocate except the fact that they um, do it over and over and over and over. Okay, so it's not like something's, if you're blind, your other senses make up for it. You're just using these cues that are already there. Well, and they become really, really good at that. I don't think, right. you know, I, I don't want to discount these amazing abilities. Oh, no, no, no. But um, uh, this paper that we're discussing in our uh, lab meeting showed that you can train people to do this and they can get pretty good fairly quickly. Again, it's like the tennis players, right? It's, it's, you, it's the doing that is the harder thing, I think. So it's funny to think of your paper about the dowel rod on the helmet. Like, where's your head at? Because, like, I think about this with my two-year-old all the time, who's, like, using her head, like, as a bulldozer, you know, and can I get through this spot, and I'm going to use my head. And I'm like, just look at it. And so obviously she's getting the same information. I'll quit, you know, chastising her. <laughs> well, the question there is, how many times did you talk to your participant and they turned to look at you and you had to duck? <laughs> <laughs> no, well... <laughs> Well, one of the things I have to have in a research assistant is somebody who's, um, who makes our participants comfortable and says, look, um, here's what you're going to do today. <laughs> um, so, you know, I just tell them, just, just roll with it, try and make them comfortable. Um, it actually is a little bit worse because of the IRB. Here's an IRB issue. Um, I can't just put a helmet on them. I have to put a shower cap on them first, right, to make it hygienic. So, oh. so the research assistant has to say, okay, well, here's this thing you're, well, here's this thing you're going to do. Oh, but first, put on this shower cap. <laughs> and so. they're like, I'm out. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> so do you guys give, I would get like gift cards or cash for doing these things. Do you give this out in your lab to your human participants? Um, we give them uh, extra credit in courses. That's oh, look do. at you. Yeah. That's cheap. They need to hold out. <laughs> some people, 
well, you know, giving away uh, gift cards, you can do that. That requires grant money, right? I mean, that's that's getting back to the NSF and those sorts of things. Um, some people give very small things. You can a candy bar goes a long way, and that's not oh, so I that'll did, work. I did a pizza one once. So that's fine. yeah. <laughs> I'm obviously super interested in this. I did this a ton as an undergrad. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Like, I'd search those boards for, like, lab participants needed. I'm like, yes, let's do this. It's super cool. <laughs> yeah, I think the only one I ever did was uh, following, uh, tracing things on a screen with a mouse hmm. in some sort of a timed way. I don't remember all the details, but I, I only did one. But it was an interesting uh, experience, for sure. Uh, so... Your lab, you said you've got a lot of PVC and duct tape and bell rods. And uh, what are the things that you couldn't do your job without? Are, are those the things? Or we, we had a whole episode, crossover episode, talking about the best types of tape to use <laughs> for different things. I'm a big fan of Gorilla Tape. <laughs> yeah. um, wow. Um, pieces of equipment I couldn't do without um, really I, I think the the wooden dowels okay I use wooden dowels uh, for people to use as probes I use them um, as uh, objects themselves so I will put weights on different parts of wooden dowels I would say that's that's it if I'm gonna start <laughs> fresh somewhere and you're gonna set me up in a lab I say you got to give me a wooden dowel budget. <laughs> What's your favorite right. diameter? <laughs> oh, oh, um, uh, I think half inch. Half inch. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Hmm. So when you're collecting your data, I mean, Shannon works in paleomagnetics, so she puts her rock samples into a magnetometer and gets data files out with vector magnetization. Uh, I work with electronics all day so i'm i'm getting data out at hundreds of kilohertz what does the data that you collect look like is it on a, like a likert scale or how do you quantify these things that are truly continuous quantities yeah yeah so sometimes we ask yes or no questions uh like could you stand on this slope um uh, and along in that same experiment we might ask them to rate their confidence that they can do this on a Likert scale, uh, we might also record their latency, so how long it takes them to say yes or no, and we would expect all of those things to vary um, with manipulations we're making. Uh, we sometimes ask them to tell us the maximum distance they could reach, so they report things that way. Um, um, perceived lengths of objects, so they are usually reproducing lengths uh, we don't ask them to give us lengths uh, or weights in in metric units for there's lots of reasons you wouldn't want to do that. They may not know what a pound weighs, for example. Uh, so we have them do it in other ways. We have them reproduce a length. So adjust this, um, the distance of this object so that it is the farthest distance you could reach, things like that. Um, I've got lots of pulleys in my lab, too. That's probably the other thing I could I need. Interesting. So w w what do you do with the pulleys in your work? Uh, well, uh, the, a pulley system is one way they would tell me um, uh, the perceived magnitudes of objects they're wielding. So they might um, 
put their arm through a curtain and wield an object and they tell me how long that object is by adjusting by using their other hand to adjust the distance of an object on a pulley system um, or we adjust um, you know the height of an object on a pulley system and they tell us to stop when it's the maximum height they could reach or um, things like that yeah okay i guess i'm a cheap date Pull, pulleys and uh, yeah, dowel man. rods yeah <laughs> So, so do you type these things into like spreadsheets and then analyze them using Excel or R or MATLAB? Yeah, so our uh, research assistants might take it by hand um, using a clipboard, or they might, you know, if they have their own uh, laptop, they can enter it directly into Excel. Um, so um, most of the analysis I do is in a, a SPSS, which is the statistical analysis software, although. Uh, I'm hearing more and more about R, and I'm um, I'm interested in trying that out. Uh, at some point, I will try to convince you to go to the Python dark side. I knew it. <laughs> so, uh. <laughs> I went to an R workshop, and it was like I cheated on John or something because he's so Python centric. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happens when you work with a programming language for eleven years. Yeah, get attached. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. We've talked some about what your data look like and how you analyze it. Are there things that could make your work better with improvements or are pulleys and dowels really going to be the, the state of the art? That is exactly what you need. Or is there some magic instrument that needs to be made to help help you better understand perception? I don't think there's a magic instrument. I think you can do... Uh, good science on a low budget and that's what I've tried to uh, do for myself other people who have a little bit more, more money to play with um, get a hold of um, camera systems to record movement because they're interested in uh, not just the movements to perform the behavior but the movements that people use to perceive like the kind of uh, probing motions that people might make in you know using a dowel rod to explore surface um, so, you know, uh, um, a motion capture camera system is useful for people, um, uh, virtual reality, because you can start to separate things that you can't really do in an everyday setting. Um, let's see. Um, I think those two are probably the most useful. There's all kinds of toys. I'm, I'm, um. Uh, tinkering with the idea of getting a hold of a, de of a, a device called an, an, an active torch. Um, okay. And, it's a, and it, what this is, is a handheld device that uh, uses uh, infrared to um, detect objects at a distance. So instead of probing a surface with a rod, you would use this object and it and it vibrates and it vibrates the frequency depends on the distance and so it's let's a it's a sensory substitution device it's like the high-tech version of the handheld dowel and i think that's interesting that's ripe for all kinds of uh experimentation john's probably going to go buy one here in a little bit <laughs> this seems like one of those things where you could get a smattering of sensors and an arduino and some like cell phone vibration motors and make some pretty interesting DIY 
sensory replacement devices. This, uh, I think what I was just, yeah, they, that inactive torch is, is commercially available, but it's, I think somebody does exactly that. It's not, um, these aren't mass produced. These are custom made and they're, um, it's using lots of those kinds of components. Interesting. So the, the last question I have, I'm sure Shannon's got some more, but was if, if you could go back and talk to yourself when you were an undergraduate, when I was an undergraduate, I never expected that I would go all the way through a PhD program. Uh, what advice did, would you give yourself as an undergrad if you were interested in experimental psychology? Well, as an undergrad, um, man, I would probably say um, two things, I think. I, I think I would tell myself to um, uh, allow yourself, myself, anyway, <laughs> whoever I was talking to, allow yourself to be inspired by your professors. Uh, that was um, really key to me and, and sort of uh, drawing off their enthusiasm and um, their, their love for what they did. Um, and, you know, I, I think follow your interests. That sounds very trite and it sounds um, simple, but I think that's really true. I think you're, especially when you're doing uh, a PhD is a, is a labor of love. And, and if you <laughs> don't love what you do, you... Um, I, I don't know why it seems like why would you put yourself through that if you didn't so find what you love to do uh, and and then go do that um, and on a more practical side I would I would say um, get varied research experience uh, and that's the way to be sure you love what you do is to get involved in different people's labs um, to Really see what there is to do. Uh, learn skills, um, but really um, fall in love with your work if you can. I think that's excellent advice. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Um, I do have one last question too. Is what of your perception tools? If you had to give one up, which one are you going to give up? Oh boy. <laughs> um, hmm. You can be informed by your research, but this is definitely you personally. What do you, what, which one? Do you oh, you don't mean my lab tools. You mean my, oh, my no. perceptual no, I mean, abilities. Oh yes. boy. <laughs> and you can completely turn this around on Shannon after you. Answer as well. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> I actually think about this a lot, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I think I might give up smell or taste if I had to. Ooh. Oh. Interesting. I don't know. What about you guys? I don't think about smell that much. I'm sure once it was gone, I would. Um, I think I'd rather be blind. I think about this a lot. Well, maybe not blind, maybe deaf. I don't know. Like if I had to give up something, probably hearing until I read some of your papers and then I think maybe I could give up my sight and I'd be okay, <laughs> you know? Um, it's something I think about a lot, I don't know. 
This is actually like one it. of the reasons I study touch because it's easy to, relatively easy to imagine life without vision uh, right. and, and mm -hmm. to simulate it, right? You just you blindfold yourself or cover Close your eyes. eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you can't really simulate being without touch. I mean, yeah. so the closest that you come to is sort of when, you know, you wake up and your arm is asleep and you sort of have to wake it back up. And that, and that's a very strange, you can't really do much with it either. No. Um, you're just sort of at the mercy hard. of mm -hmm. the rest of your body. And so I think, and this is what I was saying at the very beginning, how I think touch is more closely connected to our ability to do stuff than we might realize. It plays a role in our ability to sit and stand and, and um, you know, there's, there's a background level to touch um, that is really, really important to everyday activity. I mean, yeah, you think about going to the dentist and being numb and then trying to like drink afterwards or something and how it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous that it's impossible, but it is because you can't feel it. You definitely take it for granted. That's for sure. Yeah. When I had the, uh, one of my several incidents with a drill, particularly <laughs> one, a drill in my left palm, they numbed that entire hand when they were working on it. And that was a really strange experience. Yeah. Hmm. This is going to make me think a lot more about all the things. Um, that echolocation, I heard there was a NPR story about that. And I just thought, like, how amazing that was. But now that I know that people are training themselves to do it, I mean, yeah, I'm going to do that. That's cool. <laughs> I, I think uh, taste would be what I would give up. Smell for me is too important with things that are potentially burning in the lab. <laughs> Uh, so, but and I, I I do love some some nice unhealthy tasty food. Uh, yeah, but, but you only eat chicken strips for yeah. You eat chicken strips all the time, so it's fine. You probably drink gas station coffee too if you have to. So I could see that you could give up taste. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Very interesting. Hmm. All right. Well, without any further ado, then it's probably time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show fun paper friday yay man i got my cowbells over here i wasn't ready for it though we could have had dueling cowbells for this one since i'm not oh, you know we can try it one more time shannon okay all right you got your cowbell ready yeah, all right I, I sure do i even i have my travel cowbell ready <laughs> let's do it <laughs> all right so it's time for fun paper friday <laughs> all right <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> so, listener Xavier sent this paper in, and I thought this would be uh, an outstanding one to chat about. And I said, it's something none of us know anything about, to which Jeff said, ah, it's something you know nothing about. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, it is cl more closer related to what I do than to what you do, is all that I meant. Um, <laughs> right, no. <laughs> Um, this is fantastic. I love this paper. So, Limitations Imposed by Wearing Armor on Medieval Soldiers Locomotive Performance by Askew et al. Um, and it makes sense that once you wear armor, it gets real hard to do stuff. <laughs> so, for this study, they had some folks wearing uh, replica armor do things like walk and run on a treadmill with and without armor 
while monitoring a, a bunch of different biological markers. They're wearing a, a mask to capture their exhaled gases and, and all of these things. The figures in this paper, or at least the photos, are excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I mean, it's not just any armor. It's like exact replica armor. Like they took, they modeled one of it off of an effigy. Um, that's impressive. And these aren't just any subjects either. These are people who yes. wear these this, this armor at fairs and whatnot. So they're... Mm-hmm. This might have some interesting IRB implications. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought this whole time um, how excited these people were to get replica armor made, you know, precisely for their body shape. But... That's just a guess. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I would definitely think that, okay, it's going to impede your movement and you're going to exert a lot more energy. But, Jeff, do you, have you used this kind of monitoring on any of your subjects where they you hook them up and measure all these things about breaths per minute and all this? No, uh, but um, there has been research in this area um, looking at, this gets a little off topic, but the basic idea is that I was talking about perceiving the things you can climb earlier. Uh, not only can you perceive what you can climb, you can perceive what's most efficient to climb. And to, in order to confirm that, the researcher did exactly this, had people uh, uh, basically exercise on an adjustable stair stepper and confirmed that when they, the choices they were making uh, re reflected their um, um, the metabolism the, um, for climbing different heights of stairs. So when they consistently said, yes, that's, that's the height that I would prefer, it turned out that was the height that used the least energy. So oh. it's, I have heard of this kind of research being done and using these kinds of variables, and it makes perfect sense in this study as a measure of the energy I thought it was a little strange that so they said the body or the body armor made you about 1.4 times your typical body mass. It took about twice as much effort to walk, and uh, it was a little over two, I believe, and about 1.9 for running. I was surprised that running was slightly more efficient than walking. So I I thought this too. Like is it's probably just because once you get that inertia going that it's easier to keep it going because you've got all this heavier stuff, right? So as opposed to when you're walking, and you can see this in the graphs where they're talking about where they're going slow, like how much more metabolic usage it is when they're going slow because you've got to, I just figure you don't have that inertia to move stuff like you do when you're running. I thought a lot about this when I read this. It looks very close to Hulstrom's diagram for how much energy it takes up to pick up particular situs of sediment, and it takes just as much to pick up a super tiny piece as it does to pick up a big piece. So I know that's way off topic, but <laughs> but that's what I <laughs> thought about in this. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like once you get going, it's easier to stay going. So yeah, maybe I, it takes I think less you're exactly right stuff. about that. That I think that's. Um... Uh, it's easier to sometimes it's easier just to run down the hill than to try to walk down that hill yeah um, mm -hmm. and there is and this is one of the reasons that say speed walking 
is really good exercise because you're right in you're in between you're forcing yourself to to work at an inefficient speed your body wants to transition up or down and you're holding it at this in, uh-huh. uh, unstable spot and so yeah, i think that has a lot to do with this that that walking and i think the my guess is that the weight is would affect that transition point and maybe that transition point occurs at a slower speed when you're wearing the body armor that your body wants to to make that transition so you're forcing it to stay at this uh, unstable um coordination pattern right yep exactly exactly I would guess, too, that this messes with your weight distribution quite a bit, because if you're looking at how much metal it takes to wrap, say, your torso or your leg versus how much weight your torso or your leg is, I could imagine it might change your, your center of mass or your, your distribution significantly. And this, Jeff, this is a question for you, too, since you've done the backpack thing. So, yeah, that's what I thought. I looked up all these words for what these armor things mean, because, you know, when you've got this backpack on, that's where all of it is. But this armor spread out over your body. So that's got to change, I guess, well, a lot of your perception plus your metabolics of motion. Yeah, so... um... (laughs) I think this, I mean, obviously changes your overall mass, but I... I think it can't help, but it, it would have to change your center of mass too. Probably raising. Well, I don't know. I would think a backpack would do it more than armor would, since you have armor on every part of your body. But the backpack's loading your spine, right? I mean, this is way out of my <laughs> wheelhouse. But yeah, I know, it's I don't it's know. not you're not, you don't have the backpack weight on your arms and head yeah too. but if you ran with a backpack across the street it's terrible <laughs> i haven't ran in two decades <laughs> <laughs> it's just you know the backpack flapping around and it changes it but if you're weighted down everywhere and i'm just looking here obviously to use this to say the word sabaton or greaves right <laughs> all that leg armor that you have on I don't know. It's interesting. But it was cool how they also talked about how stride kinematics weren't really affected by having all the armor on. Yeah, I found that I interesting too, that that the mm-hmm. that didn't they didn't move any differently. I guess it just was more effortful. Right. Which I attribute to this ridiculously well crafted armor, obviously. <laughs> just being everywhere on you. It doesn't change how you how you do it. Although it did say something about, um, you know, the friction in between the joints and stuff might, might account for some of the metabolic differences too. So those, uh, yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah. How well did you oil your armor that morning? Exactly. (laughs) And I love, like, this is relegated to the last like three sentences basically about like, why do you care about this? And it says that fatigue, I guess, as is, been attributed to um, I, the French army at the Battle of Agincourt in 1450. Fatigue by the French army because they were walking across a muddy field in armor led to their defeat. Um, that's that's very interesting, right? <laughs> um, and so it says that you know maybe this kind of fatigue is can be looked at when talking about the outcome of many of these medieval battles. It's also not um, unrelated to 
body armor, although it's not metal, but it's still body armor worn by military personnel and police officers now. Mm-hmm. It's certainly lighter and easier to get around with, but still there's, you know, it's going to cause fatigue and um, they need to account for that when they do their maneuvers and yep. pers- pursuits. and. Exactly. I mean, we talk about it when we go out into the field too, you know, don't load your backpack down with all this crap you think you need because that's dumb and you're just going to be more tired by the end of the day so yeah and you need room for rocks yeah that's true and you need room for rocks that's the main thing (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was actually uh, between my house and work uh, they the fire department has a training tower and yesterday they had the the new the rookie firefighters out there doing ladder drills with the dummies in full gear air (laughs) tanks on and everything I can imagine that being a very similar study to this. <laughs> it's not rigid, but it's a lot of weight, and it's a weird distribution. Mm-hmm. Yep, I would think so. Hmm. Hmm. Well, Xavier, thanks for sending in this fun paper. This was a, <laughs> a really good <laughs> find. And Jeff, is there anything else that you would like to add that you want folks to know? I don't think so. Just be thankful for your uh, perceptual systems and their <laughs> role in your everyday life. <laughs> that also sounds like some pretty good advice. And if folks wanted to uh, find your work or keep up with what you and your lab are doing, how would you like to be found on the Internet? Probably just through a Google search. You'll find me and you'll find my um, lab webpage at uh, Illinois State University. Um, I think that's the best way. All right, great. Well, listeners, if you are doing some of your own perceptual experiments or would like to report your metabolic rate while running in your custom fit suit of armor, we would <laughs> love to see that data and send it over to Jeff to run through his statistical analysis software. <laughs> Shannon, how can folks send that in? Uh, please send that in. Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. You can find us in the Slack chat room from the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our patrons for supporting us. You can do so as well at patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.